Throughout this fall, as we are preparing to celebrate our 50th anniversary as a congregation, as people who proclaim the gospel of God's grace in Christ, we are working our way through the entire book of Galatians, Paul's letter. As we've been saying, most likely, very probably, the very first book of the New Testament ever written. Again, it's all about the centrality of the gospel. If you've missed a few Sundays, we can outline the entire letter like this. That chapters 1 to 2 is Paul's personal defense of the gospel of grace against those who were trying to add works and being very religious to the work of Christ. It's his personal defense. He shares his own biography, his own story, and the power and the transformation that the gospel of grace had on his own life. That's chapters 1 to 2. Chapters 3 and 4 is Paul's more robust theological defense of the gospel, digging into wonderful, rich theology, connecting us all the way back to the very story of Abraham in the Old Testament. And now finally in verses, or rather chapters 5 and 6, we see the practical application of the gospel of grace. And the very practical question that's before us today is this, that if we are saved by God's grace and we're saved by God's grace alone in the work and the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we're saved by grace, then how does that actually motivate us to obey? If we're saved by God's grace and grace alone, how does that actually motivate us to do good works, to love one another as Christ has loved us? Because Paul says here, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he begins with these wonderful words, powerful words. He says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, slavery of the law. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the Greek verb here for has set us free, the Greek verb is what's called the aorist tense. The aorist tense. And the aorist tense means that this is a simple completed past action. It's a simple, and here's the key word, completed past action. Christ has set us free. Christ has set you free, set you free from the burden of the law, set you free from the wrath of God, set you free from your sins, set you free from death. Christ has set you free, period, full stop. You're in the club. You're in the family. You are accepted. You are his. Again, period, end of sentence. That's just the fact. That's the simple, completed past action. He has set you free. Now, if that's true, and it is true, how does knowing that motivate you then to obey? You're already accepted. You're already in. In fact, Paul himself seems a little bit 
concerned about this, that the gospel can actually not motivate us to obey, but demotivate us to obey, because at the very end of this section, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is, for sinning, but through love serve one another. See, Paul seems a little bit concerned. You are set free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. But don't use your freedom to sin all the more. On the one hand, Paul here is concerned that we don't lose the freedom that we have in the gospel. On the other hand, here Paul doesn't want us to abuse the freedom that we have in the gospel. Again, the question is, how does knowing the gospel of grace actually motivate us to actually want to obey. Paul sent a letter to a young pastor named Titus with the same type of question. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and he says this, that the grace of God has appeared, training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Again, the question is how? The grace of God has appeared and it teaches us and it trains us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness, to unrighteousness. But again, the gospel means that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already loves you. And the gospel means there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. The gospel means that God loves you and accepts you and forgives you no matter what you have done, no matter what you do. You're accepted. You're in. Again, how does knowing that motivate us? I mean, if he accepts me and loves me no matter what I do, well, why should I strive to obey and to do good things? You're familiar with the phenomenon known as senioritis. These are students in high school. And if you're a student in high school and you actually want to go to college, you want to do well and have a great GPA, you know, your freshman year, you work really hard, and your sophomore year, you work really hard, and your junior year, you work really hard, and for three-fourths of your senior year, you work really hard. You bust your gut. You try to get the best GPA you can possibly get. Try to do the best you can do on the ACT or the SAT. And you submit it all to the college of your choice, but then you get the letter in the mail. And you have been accepted. I mean, it is a done deal. You are accepted to the college of your choice. And so now in the springtime, in that last quarter, all of a sudden, for some reason, A's become B's or A's become C's because we all know that C's equal degrees. It's the motivation. You know, you can talk to your student. You say, look, you know, what's happening here? Why are you great? Look, I'm already in. I'm already accepted. Why should I work so hard? Well, for the love of learning, for the love of the knowledge itself. Yeah, right. <laughs> the gospel means you can do nothing to make God love you any more than he already loves you. And no matter what you do, he loves you and he forgives you. How does that motivate us? 
to obey, to obedience, to love and service? Well, I think we find the answer to that in verses 5 and 6 of Galatians chapter 5. I think 5 and 6 is kind of the heart of this entire passage. In verse 5, we see a transformation that can take place within us because of hope. And in verse 6, we see a transformation that can take place within us because of love. A transformation that comes from hope, that's verse 5, and a transformation that comes from love, that's verse 6. Let's look at verse 5, this hope that Paul talks about. Paul says in verse 5, that through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Again, it's through the Spirit. We talked about this last week, if you were here, that it's only through the Holy Spirit. 100% it's the work of God supernaturally working on our hearts. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, no one can say, no one has the ability to say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. It's through the Spirit, by faith, not our works, not our obedience, not our own abilities. By faith, that's the empty hands of faith. We ourselves eagerly Wait. We eagerly wait. There's a transformation that is occurring. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I've said this before, but the word hope, this is one of the biggest problems in translations. I think one of the biggest problems in translating the Greek into the English is this word hope. Because hope in English is a fairly weak word, but hope in Greek is a very strong word. Hope in English conveys oftentimes an uncertainty. Are the Broncos going to win? I hope so. You know, Green Bay's had some injuries, so. I know, I looked it up. Um, Gotta fit in with the regular people. Hope conveys oftentimes uncertainty. Boy, boy, you're going to win the lottery? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. But Greek, it's the exact opposite. Greek is a bedrock certainty. It is a certain hope. These things simply have to happen. It must by necessity take place. We ourselves eagerly wait. This is through the Holy Spirit, we eagerly wait for the certainty, the hope, the certain hope of this righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ returning to this world. This is a new heavens and a new earth. This is that future life. This is what you're longing for, what you were made for. The joy and the peace of heaven itself. And it's transformative. Now Paul would go on a little later and write a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he, and he expands on this a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says this. He says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Our inheritance is that future day, that future life, that future righteousness that Paul's speaking of in Galatians chapter 5. And it says, when you heard the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God came upon you, who is the, quote, guarantee. Now, in my Bible here, which is the same Bible as you have in the pew, there's a little footnote by guarantee, and it says down here, guarantee or down payment that the Holy Spirit through the gospel that means of grace is the guarantee is the very down payment of your future life your future inheritance in other words another way of saying it is that the Holy Spirit is the very first installment of the life that is to come. The very first installment of heaven itself, Christian, is already within you even now. Not the fullness, maybe just a taste, maybe just a glimmer, maybe you don't feel it very often at all, but the objective truth is that the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is there upon Madeline, is upon you. It means this. Why do we obey? You know, the old way, the, the religious way, the way of the law is you obey, you obey, or you obey so that one day you can go to heaven. But the gospel is, is that you obey and you're enabled and transformed to be, be able to obey and begin to obey because heaven, at least a glimmer of heaven, is already within you. You see the difference? C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. And I apologize for the size of the font. But he says this. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him but trying in a new way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has saved you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. wanting to act. See, there's a transformation, there's a change. Wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already within you. That's that extraordinary life in Christ we talk about here at our Father. That's a hope. That's the certainty of what is to come. And the first installment of that future is already there. And then secondly, not just the transformational hope, but transformational love that we see here in verse 6. Where Paul says this. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that means whether you're super, super, super religious and, and, and are trying to save yourself by following the law, or whether uncircumcision, you're not religious at all and you're a total pagan, whether it's being super religious or irreligious, it counts for nothing. It doesn't count for anything, he says, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. What is faith? That is trust. It's letting go because you have a relationship with Christ because of his love for you, because you've seen him suffering and dying in your place. You say, what is love? Good question. The Apostle John has an answer, 1 John chapter 4. He says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a substitute to take the very wrath and the justice of God, which we deserve in our place, crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is love, not that we somehow have summoned up within ourselves great love for him, but that he first loved us. He first loved you. You see, the gospel isn't simply, you know, God loves you and forgives you no matter what you do. The gospel isn't simply that. The gospel is God loves you and forgives you no matter what you do because God himself has paid the price. God has given himself. Suffered infinite agony and loss. Why? Because he wants you. I pray that sinks in. It's all about our motivation, isn't it? You know, maybe you've heard the Story, the parable. This was told by Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England in the 19th century. And so it's a cute little parable. It's this of a farmer who grew a carrot. And it was the most wonderful carrot he had ever grown. The most wonderful, amazing carrot. And he got the carrot. He says, I want to give this to my king. The king is so lovely. The king is so wonderful king is so good so the farmer goes before the king and he presents his carrot to the king and the king is so moved and he says you have given me a carrot I am going to give to you a field and you can grow as many carrots as you want so there's a nobleman who's there he goes oh all right if a carrot gets a field What's going to happen if I give the king one of my best horses? A horse is way better than the carrot. So the nobleman takes one of his best horses. He says, oh, king, here is one of my finest of horses, and it is yours. And the king says, all right, thank you very much. And the nobleman <laughs> is waiting. 
He's thinking to himself, okay, the farmer gave a carrot, and he got a field. I gave a whole horse. I get nothing. What's the deal? And the king can perceive his thoughts. He says, look, the farmer gave away his carrot for me. But you have given away your horse for yourself. When we strive to obey, to keep the law, trying to earn our way to heaven, I want to do these things uh, for God. We're ultimately not doing them for God. We're doing them for ourselves. But it's the gospel, the hope, and the love of God that transforms, which changes us. And it doesn't just make us nicer. It makes us new. It's not moral reformation which takes place so much as it is a deep internal spiritual transformation. We'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, again in Mere Christianity, the last chapter, it's entitled, Nice People Are New Men. Now, he's publishing this in 1943. He didn't know about gender-inclusive language. Okay. So, but, but, but when you understand, it's not just new men, but new women as well. This is what Lewis writes and wrote. A world of nice people would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a world of miserable people and would be even more difficult to save because they think they're saving themselves. For mere improvement is not redemption, though in the end, redemption will improve you to a degree that you cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better kinds of the old creatures, but to produce a new kind of person. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature, a whole new type of being altogether. The gospel doesn't just make us nicer, it makes us new. It's not moral reformation so much as it is a spiritual transformation. And that happens, remember what Martin Luther said, gospel is so precious, so fundamental, it's the core ecclesia, it's the very foundation upon which the church stands or falls, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And he says we have to do what? Beat it into our heads continually. We have to beat it and beat it into our stubborn brains and down into our hardened hearts. And I'll close with this analogy and then we'll pray. A bent piece of iron. You can take a bent piece of iron and by external force and pressure, you can begin to bend it back into place and straighten it, maybe to where it would look somewhat decent and straight again. But in the process of doing that, what actually happens to the iron? It actually weakens. But you take that bent piece of iron and you do what? You put it into the furnace. You put it into the fire. 
Something happens internally in the molecular and atomic level. And you can bend it and you can shape it in all sorts of ways. And it actually gets tempered. It actually ends up stronger than it was before. That's the gospel. The God who knows you, knows your heart, who made you, who gave everything away from you for you. That furnace, that fire of the Holy Spirit which can transform. Let's pray for that right now this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that through the means of grace, word and sacrament, meditation of your word and prayer and remembering our baptism and receiving the Lord's Supper and all these ways in which you work, Lord, we pray for the furnace, the fire of the good news of the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. That we would know that we are new, we are holy in your sight. And that would change us. And yes, as your gospel says, it is for freedom, Christ, that you have set us free, that we can be free to be the people that we really want to be. To be more loving and more serving because you have loved and you have served us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.